0: Belief drives behavior. We don't have to be a a psychologist or a behavior specialist to grasp this. Belief drives behavior. Another way to say this is that our behavior gives voice to what we believe. Think about it we set an alarm. Because we believe that we're going to wake up in the morning. We just want to wake up on time. We stand on surfaces. We sit in chairs. Because we believe that they're going to support us. If you're a parent, you parent a certain way because you believe that what you do and say to your children will have an outcome in their lives. We make decisions, both good and bad, in all of life based on what we believe about ourselves, our intrinsic purpose, the world, and our relationships. Belief drives behavior. And this truth touches all of our lives, including including the life of the local church. When it comes to what we believe about God, about doctrine, about who the church is, and what her mission is, when it comes to the authority and sufficiency of God's Word, when it comes to Jesus and the gospel and the roles and qualifications of leadership in the church, our beliefs in these areas inform and shape our church practices and how we live our life together as the body of Christ. Paul understood this. So he wrote a letter called 1 Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Timothy, to the church then and to the church now so that we might believe and behave in such a way that brings glory to Jesus So please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Timothy. We're going to be living in chapter 3 of this letter today. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under a chair near you. 1 Timothy 3 is on page 933 or 34, I believe. This is God's word to the church. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I have nothing important to say this morning, but you do. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us from your Word, that you would feed us from it, and that we would be transformed by it this morning. I ask that this would not just be another routine Sunday for us here this morning, but we ask, Spirit, that you would help us, that you would grow us, that we would behold the living Christ together and come to better know him and live like him this morning. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the 1 Timothy was on the New York Times bestseller book list. It would be titled, A Manual for Flourishing Churches. It is a letter, as we have seen in the previous messages, chapter 1 and 2, about what a healthy church believes and how it behaves. We've seen thus far in chapter 1, we discovered that a flourishing church first and foremost protects the entrusted mission of the gospel. In chapter 2, we discovered that a flourishing church prioritizes prayer, the payment, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the purposeful, complementary roles of men and women in corporate or public worship. And here in chapter 3, we see and we discover that a flourishing church has Christ-like leadership and lives out the truth of the gospel together. If you're a note taker, that's the main point of 1 Timothy 3. A flourishing church has Christ-like leadership and lives out the truth of the gospel together. Paul unfolds this point as he writes to the church then and now about what the qualifications of Christ-like pastors are in verses one through seven. And then what the qualifications of Christ-like deacons and deaconesses are in verses eight through 13. And then Paul clearly states the letter's purpose and encourages us in Christ-like living in verses 14 through 16. That is our outline this morning. And timing-wise, my first point will be the longest, And my second and third will be a little shorter. Point one, a flourishing church has Christ-like pastors. Look with me again at verses one through seven. The saying is trustworthy if an overseer, if he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well, let's do a brief thought experiment just for a moment. Two questions. First, when you think of a good leader, who comes to mind? Second, When you think of the characteristics of a good leader, what characteristics come to mind? Now, if we went around the room, I guarantee that there would be a variety of different perspectives on this, particularly on who a good leader is. Some may say someone like George Washington or Martin Luther King or Winston Churchill. There would be even... More variety on what the characteristics of a good leader are. Some might say strong and bold, others gentle and humble, others charismatic, likable. There's a great variety of responses. But how does God define a leader in his house, in his church, and what are the characteristics of that leader? We'll enter Paul's words to Timothy, a pastor in the church of Ephesus, here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Here we have the characteristics of a leader in the church, more specifically male leaders, pastors in the church. We know that Paul is primarily writing to male pastors here as he just gave a prohibition to the church of women holding authority over men through teaching and holding the role of pastor in chapter 2. So Paul is specifically addressing elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds, which are all interchangeable terms for the same role, and laying out their qualifications in these first seven verses. And before we walk through these qualifications, we should note four things. Four things. First, don't tune out, brothers and sisters. Don't tune out, thinking that this is only for men and pastors. Don't do that. Yes, these verses are directed to pastors in the church, but these characteristics outside of a handful that are specific to pastoral care ought to mark every Christian in this room. These qualifications are not just for a pastor. These qualifications are for the church. Second, we should note how beautifully ordinary that list of qualifications is here. D.A. Carson says the most remarkable thing about these characteristics is that there is nothing remarkable about them. They are biblical qualities that each Christian ought to pursue. Yes, it is a high standard, but it is a standard that can be pursued with the Lord's help. Third, these qualifications are to be pursued and not perfected in this life. And this is important. If you are looking for a perfect pastor then you could look no further than the cemetery. That man is dead. That man is with Jesus. There is no such thing as a perfect pastor this side of glory. But all pastors and Christians are to pursue and grow in these characteristics by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit day by day. Fourth, why do these qualifications matter and why should you care about any of this? First, because it's in the Bible. Second, our perspective on leadership matters. Who leads the church matters. And if we aren't aware of the biblical characteristics put forward here in 1 Timothy 3, then we won't know what to rightly look for in a pastor. So with these, these things said, let's walk through these verses. Paul starts, verse 1. The task and office of pastor is aspired to, desired, and noble. The office of pastor isn't a volunteer position. A pastor is not a CEO with a board of directors around him called other pastors. The church isn't a corporation. It's not. The office of pastor is not something done half-heartedly. No, the good work of pastoral care of a pastor, whether they are set apart vocationally or non-vocationally, ought to be and have an aspiration. He ought to have an aspiration and heart's desire to serve the church in a noble and worthy way in accordance with this noble and worthy calling to be a pastor. Verse two, a pastor must Also, be above reproach, meaning trustworthy, trustworthy in all areas of life. In 2012, author and pastor Paul David Tripp put out a book called Dangerous Calling. If you're familiar with that book, it's superb and it's convicting about the dangers and pitfalls of ministry. And on the back sleeve of one of the earliest editions, there are several endorsements by popular, prolific pastors praising Tripp for writing such a wonderful book of warnings. Tragically and ironically, many of the men who read and endorsed the book on the sleeve are no longer serving as pastors because of deep moral or ethical failure. That's a tragedy, and that ought to break our hearts. Because when a pastor morally or ethically fails, he's not above reproach, it blemishes the gospel, and it blemishes the bride of Christ, the church. In the context of the letter, in chapter 1, Paul gave us examples of men and women in chapter 2. Men and women like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who made shipwreck of their faith. And this is why Paul starts here. Pastors then and now are to be above reproach, men who watch their doctrine and their life for the good of their own soul and for the good of the souls entrusted to them in the church. Also, verse 2 and following, a pastor must be the husband of one wife. A pastor must be a a one-woman man. A man who is faithful to his wife who sees her as the apple of his eye. In a day of rampant moral failure, this qualification is vital. One pastor puts it this way. If there's any question of a man's fidelity to his wife, he should not be appointed as a pastor. Does this mean a pastor must be married? Does a, does a pastor have to be married? No. 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 Uh, Jesus was a single man. Uh, Paul was a single man. Paul even believed that singleness was a benefit to his ministry. But if a man is married and aspires to be a pastor or is a pastor, he must be faithful to his wife, banishing pornography and lust of the eyes and guarding his heart for the Lord for the sake of his wife. A pastor must also be sober-minded and self-controlled. He must be balanced, sober, and controlled as a person. Nothing can ultimately drive his affections but Jesus. Yeah, he can have hobbies. Hobbies are good. He can have earthly provisions. Yes, those are good things. But he ought to not be controlled by these things. A pastor is also to be respectable. A pastor's life ought to be well-ordered and have a good reputation with those inside and outside the church. He is to also be hospitable. He must love his neighbors, willing to share the resources entrusted to him by God for the good of others. The text also says there at the end of verse 2 that he is able to teach. He must be able to teach. A pastor must be able to clearly communicate the truth of Christ in his word. This does not mean that a pastor must be able to preach in the pulpit, but he must be able to publicly teach God's Word clearly. This can even happen in a small group or Bible study or or study environment. In the end, a pastor must be able to communicate and defend sound doctrine in the life of the church and to protect the church, to protect the gospel, once and for all handed down to God. And for the church. He's also not to be a drunkard, as we read there. A pastor can't be in bondage to alcohol. John Piper puts it this way freedom from enslavement should be so highly prized that no bondage is yielded to. Does this mean that a pastor cannot drink? No. Paul actually instructs Timothy to drink wine to settle his stomach and help with frequent ailments in chapter 5, 23 of this letter. But in the end, the pastor must not, cannot be enslaved to strong drink. Moderation is necessary. A pastor should also not be violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome. A pastor must not be prone to violence, verbally or physically. He must not be abusive nor domineering, but level-headed and gracious toward others. He is to lead and correct and oppose false doctrine and false practices in the church, yes. But he is to do so not with indifference or passivity, but with the gracious aim of love, as Paul says back in chapter 1. Now maybe you are here today, this morning, and you have been hurt by the church, Maybe you're here today and you've been hurt by a pastor in the church. Knowingly or unknowingly, church hurt is a real thing. It's a real thing because the church is made up of sinners. I can't speak on behalf of every pastor and situation that's above my pay grade, way above my pay grade but I can say that I'm sorry. And I pray that reconciliation and restoration would be sought after, and that would be the final outcome. We read also that he must not be a lover of money. He must not be a slave to the almighty dollar and set on financial gain. Yes, a vocational pastor ought to be paid and, and able to live within the means that the Lord has provided for him through the church. But the heart of the pastor is not bent and set on financial gain. He must also manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, he will how will he care for God's church? A man's home is his training ground for ministry how he emotionally and spiritually leads, engages, and cares for his wife and children, if he is indeed married and has children, ought to overflow in his love and care and emotional and spiritual management in the church. When it comes to his children, those children living under his roof, under his care, are there to respect him and honor him as he spiritually leads in prayer family worship, and scripture reading in the home. Now, 100% obedience is not required of pastor's children. That is an ungodly and soul-crushing thing to put on anyone. The pastor can't save his children. No one can. Only God can do that. It's God's work. But a pastor's children are to obey, submit, and grow under his care, as he lives and submits to God and lives a life worthy of Christ with the Lord's help. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. In the context of the church of Ephesus, false teachers had risen up who were teaching and living in an ungodly and unfruitful way. It is likely that many of these men and women were new converts, given too much opportunity and too much platform too early, underdeveloped and overexposed. Pastor is to be humble and mature in the faith, ultimately recognizing that where worldly leadership is about place and prestige and power and pride, the work of a pastor is one of humble service. Also, lastly, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. This final qualification from Paul functions as a bookend. It's similar to the first one, right? To be above reproach. A man of integrity with those inside and outside the church. Uh, When a man is called to be a pastor here at Edgewood Bible Church, there's a series of references that are requested. And one of those references is a non-believer outside of the church. That character reference is in step and in line with, with this qualification here. Well, maybe you noticed in, in these verses, these qualifications really fall into three categories, three, three Cs, character, conviction, and competency. All three are present here, but the bulk of the characteristics are related to character, and that should make us pause A pastor ought to be a man of good character before competency, so that he may be an example to the church of Christ-likeness. The church can be prone to elevate men who are exceedingly competent but lack character. In the last handful of years, we've seen many of those, right? But is it any wonder why the church is so often blemished by men who rise and fall because of moral ethical failure? when they are selected on grounds other than their character. The church is to take this seriously. Paul recognizes that what a pastor believes ultimately is displayed in, in how he behaves. And so this passage is a call to the church to appoint men who hold sound doctrine and have sound Christ-like character. Men who first and foremost look to Jesus, who is the anchor and chief pastor Jesus, the model and motivator of all pastors and churches, for he perfectly embodied these qualifications. Check this out, brothers and sisters. Where earthly pastors fall short, he doesn't and hasn't and will never. He was and is perfectly above reproach. The husband of one wife, the church. He was and is perfectly sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, and not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He perfectly manages his household well, the church. He is not conceited, and though he was opposed by many, he was well thought of by outsiders, and he engaged and dined with them. And though no pastor nor Christian in this room is Jesus— A pastor's or Christian's beliefs and behaviors are to reflect him. So pastors of EBC, Jeff and Lynn and Jeff, myself included, and Eric, Christ is the chief pastor. He is our perfect model and motivator. He is our example, and so... May we continue, by God's grace, to look to him in our leadership of the church. Let's pray that the Spirit would grow these Christ-like characteristics in us so that we may look more like him. Let's ask the Spirit to further conform us into the image of Jesus, not just individually, but collectively, as a team of pastors, being quick to lead and teach sound doctrine from God's word, quick to pray for the flock here at EBC quick to encourage others in the church, quick to admit weaknesses and repent where necessary and quick to give all glory to Christ who is the chief shepherd, the chief pastor. At the end of the day, that is our chief responsibility, brothers. That's our responsibility to point this church, this body of Christ to Christ in our words and deeds. Also, church, we invite you to hold us accountable to these qualifications as we hold you accountable, where appropriate, to these qualifications. We invite you to do that. Because, again, these characteristics are for the whole church, the whole church. May we all pursue these characteristics so that we might all grow in maturity and faith together so that more men would be raised up and called to pastor here at EBC. Also, just a note, Christ-like uh, leaders are not self-appointed. They're not self-appointed. They are recognized and appointed by elders in the congregation. So may we regularly ask ourselves, what men in our church bear these qualities, are, are living and pursuing these qualifications. And let's together encourage that brother and work to appoint him as a pastor, as an elder here, for, for his joy, for our good, and for the glory of God. Well, why, why does a church need pastors? We should, we should, have you ever asked that question? Why does, a, why does a church even need pastors, particularly plurality, meaning multiple pastors, Well, pulling from one brother, pastor, and commentator, first, it is the pattern of the New Testament church. Second, pastors assure congregations of well-rounded and well-balanced ministry. Third, a plurality of pastors meets the plurality and diverse needs of the congregation. And pastors ultimately strengthen the church's unity and efficiency. Brothers and sisters, a flourishing church needs... Christ-like pastors, but also Christ-like deacons and deaconesses. So let's look there now. Point two, verses eight through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Similar to the previous section, these qualifications are a mirror, ought to be a mirror for every Christian in this room. Not just those who serve or aspire to serve as a deacon or deaconess. These verses are for the whole church. Now, there are different perspectives on, on deacons amongst different denominations historically. Um, in some churches, there are, there are no pastors. There are only deacons. And deacons do all the work, spiritual and Practical. Some denominations and understandings of deacons and deaconesses also draw a spiritual line between pastors and, and deacons, uh, if, as if one is more spiritual than the other. This is wildly unhelpful because both offices, as we've seen here in God's Word, both offices are here and present. Both offices are Spiritual. And it's clear here in this chapter that just as the church needs the complementary roles of men and women, the church also needs the complementary roles of pastors and deacons and deaconesses. It takes two to make a thing go right. And we need pastors and deacons, model servants in the life of the church. So verse 8, Paul starts the section of the letter with the words likewise deacons, which connects it to the previous section. And I'm sure you notice the similarities between the qualifications. Outside of being able to teach, this list of characteristics is strikingly similar, right? Strikingly similar. A deacon must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, not a slanderer, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Male deacons must be the husband of one wife. They must manage their children and their own households well. These qualifications are almost word for word the same, and similar to the pastor's qualifications. But did you notice the handful of differences? Just a handful of differences. First, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. What does that mean? Well, back in chapter 1, Paul connected faith and conscience. And here he is building on that truth by further connecting connecting it to mystery, the mystery of faith. And mystery in the New Testament is a little different than the way that we generally think about mystery a mystery is a revealed secret. That's the New Testament understanding of mystery, a revealed secret. It is something that was once concealed and it is now revealed. And at its root, the mystery of faith that has been revealed in the person is the person and work of Christ. And the results of that work. And here, the deacon or deaconess is to hold. I love that language. Is to hold. Hold the person and work of Jesus with a pure conscience, with a forgiven and cleansed conscience, not having a conscience that is seared like the false teachers in Ephesus, as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 2. But one that is pure before God. Pure not because of their works, but because of Jesus' work on their behalf. Brothers and sisters, a deacon or deaconess believes in and loves and serves Jesus because they hold him. And that belief and love and service and holding of Christ spills over into their life in the church and their service in the church. The second difference there from the elder qualifications above is in verse, uh, verse 10. A deacon should be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Before one is called to serve as a, as a deacon, they should be first tested, meaning that they should be given leadership to a certain degree or another to see how they handle it. Further, as Paul encourages the church later in the letter, we are not to be too hasty in laying on of hands or to take part in the sins of others. One way to accomplish this is to test and wait and see. The third difference is their wives must be dignified. Now, a ton of ink has been spilt on this verse. Like a lot of ink has been spilt on this verse, y'all. Maybe you're asking, wait, hold on, in this qualification, is Paul prohibiting women from serving in a diaconal way or, or a deaconess? I'm pretty sure we have deaconesses here at EBC. What's going on there? Is this similar to how he prohibits women from the officer or a role of pastor in chapter two? And why are the wives of deacons brought up here but not mentioned, but the elders' wives are not mentioned above? What's up with that? Well, the word wives in verse 11 is the Greek word gynaikos, which is where we get the word gynecology. and simply means woman, women. And here is where taking different translations into account is super helpful because I believe that the NIV translation got it right and is helpful when it translates verse 11 this way. In the same way, that women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate. And trustworthy in everything. So I believe that Paul is simply referring here to women who are in that deaconess role. And to add, uh, this isn't the only place in the New Testament where women deacons or deaconesses are mentioned. Uh, Paul in Romans 16 calls Phoebe a deaconess, a servant in the church of Synchrea. So this verse is not an exclusion of women from this role, but an inclusion. Of women in this role for the glory of God. If you want to hear more on this topic, uh, I preached on this from Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, a couple years ago. You can find that, that message online. Well, we ought to notice here that there, there's no mention of the particular gifting or specific job of the deacon or deaconess here in these qualifications, right? They are first recognized by what? Their Christ likeness, by their character. As one who, verse 13, serves well and has gained good standing for themselves and has great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And like elders, they are first and foremost to be present and faithful members before they're appointed to this role. Because at the end of the day, a deacon or deaconess isn't simply recognized on the grounds of their competency, but on the grounds of their character and likeness and desire to build up the kingdom in practical care. And so Christ-like deacons and deaconesses are not about setting up little kingdom territories in the church. Rather, they're about building up and unifying the church as a whole. Deacons and deaconesses are team-oriented, church-oriented individuals, quick to bring others alongside them and quick to raise up more leaders around them. This makes them worthy to be modeled and imitated as they follow and imitate Jesus, the one who came not to be deaconed, but to deacon by laying his life down. We should thank God together for the deacons and deaconesses that God has gifted our church. Jim, Louise, Chris, Aaron, Kristen, Gary, Rebecca, and Christy thank God for these men and women. But I ask you, I ask all of you, how are you serving in the church right now? How are you serving? How might you come alongside one of these individuals I just just named and be developed, trained up here in service of the church? If you're currently serving as a deacon or deaconess, who have you brought alongside you and are developing to work yourself out of a job in a good way. As our church grows, the diverse needs of the church grows. So may we continue to keep an eye out as a church for men and women in our midst to display these character qualities for our good, for the glory of God. Amen? So I want to make sure you're still with me. Amen? amen. Okay, oh, a flourishing church has Christ-like leadership, pastors, deacons, deaconesses, and lives out the truth of the gospel together. And that brings us to point three, Christ-like living. Verses 14 through 16. Let me read those verses. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, these three verses are the downtown of 1 Timothy. All roads lead into these verses and out of these verses. Another way to think about this is that these verses are like the sun. All the rest of the verses in the letter kind of orbits around it. Here Paul lays out the central purpose in writing the letter. And he lays out what's of first importance in the life of the church of Ephesus and our church here at EBC. And here's what's important, of first importance. Here it is. Jesus, his gospel, and Christ-like living behavior that displays the truth of that gospel. We see this in verses 14 through 15. Paul says, I've written all these things to you from the beginning to the end of the letter so that you may know how to behave in the church, which is the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Here Paul links belief in the truth of Christ and Christ-like behavior in the household of God, the church. Uh, maybe you've been to Hobby Lobby recently and seen those signs that say like house rules. Have you seen, <laughs> seen these signs? House rules. Help each other. Always tell the truth. Share. Be thankful. Try new things. Say I love you, etc. You know what I'm talking about? In the short house, we have two primary rules, and we talk about them almost daily. Love Jesus, love one another. Well, here Paul is saying, he's he's giving us God's household rules. He's saying that the, the rules are kind of contained in this letter. First rule is guard the gospel together, as he said in chapter one. Second is pray together, proclaim the gospel together, guard the roles of men and women in the church together. And third, the third rules, raise up and appoint Christ-like qualified leaders and live out the truth of the gospel together. These are the house rules of God. These are the rules for the church, then and now. And why is the church given these rules? Have you ever asked that? Why, Why would the Spirit through the hand of Paul even give these words to the church? Why? Because the church is the church of the living God, not a dead God. The living God and the church is the pillar and buttress of truth in him. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are, a pillar of God's truth. That's what we are together, a pillar that upholds the truth of God's word and the gospel. And here Paul is using contemporary language and imagery to make a point. See, the temple of Diana was at the center of Ephesus. And it was known for its grandeur. It was supported by giant columns. And that edifice was representative of a false truth, false living, and a false confession or profession of faith in a false god. There are similar edifices, false gods in the world today, right? There is nothing new under the sun. Ancient problems are modern problems with nuance. But the church, God's house, is to be a pillar and support of a true and better truth, the truth of the what? Mystery of godliness. Again, here is that mystery language once again. He's already used it once in this chapter. The language of what was concealed and is now revealed. And what, or better, who, is the mystery of godliness. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the truth that we proclaim. He is the church's confession and profession, proclamation in word and deed, and and Jesus, the mystery of godliness has been revealed once and for all, for he was, verse 16, manifested in the flesh, right? The incarnation. He was vindicated by the spirit in his death and resurrection. That's what it says in verse 16. Jesus was seen by angels at his birth, throughout his ministry, at his ascension and beyond. Jesus is proclaimed among the nations. We see this in the ongoing preaching of God's word as the gospel goes out. Jesus is believed on in the world as the gospel goes out to the nations. And sinners repent and believe in him. And Jesus was finally and ultimately taken up in glory at his ascension and has been enthroned in glory forevermore. Here, Paul walks us through a chronological progression of the gospel, the good news for sinners. And if you are here today and you do not know this Jesus, if you are here today and you have questions about what it would look like to to have a relationship with him, to repent of your sin and, and turn to him by faith and find a better way to live, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I'd love to speak with you. Or you can find another one of the pastors here at EBC. Or you could ask a face somewhere in the row around you that would love to share with you the truth, this truth about Jesus. But beloved Christian, in this whole chapter, Paul's been making it clear that the church's pastors, the church's deacons in verses 1 through 13, to the church's confession, profession of the mystery of godliness, who is Jesus, all comes back to him. It all comes back to Jesus. We're to live in a way that reveals him and the truth. Now, our behavior, the way we live, is not what saves us. It doesn't. Paul is not proclaiming, as one brother pastor says, the mystery of goodliness here. This is the mystery of godliness, who is Christ himself. This is not a graceless message of do better, be better. This is a message of grace through Jesus and his work. And so, in closing, Jesus is the heart of 1 Timothy, it's the heart of this letter. Jesus ought to be the heart of the church. Jesus ought to be our heart. This mystery of godliness ought to be our heart together. And it is in him and through him and because of him that we can actually share that heart with one another and live together in a way that is Christ-like and God-glorifying as we love as we have been shown love, as we forgive as we have been forgiven, as we reconcile as we have been reconciled as we give grace, as we have received grace. See, what we believe about Jesus, his person and his work, is going to drive the way that we live together, brothers and sisters. It all comes back to him. So what do you believe about Jesus and his finished work? And how is that finished work, how is the person and work of Jesus shaping your life today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We praise you and we thank you and we rejoice in him. We thank you for his finished work and we ask that you would cause us to believe it and rest in it and live in it and out of it. Lord, we ask that what we have not that you would give us and what we know not that you would teach us and what we are not that you would make us for our good, for the glory of Jesus, our living Savior. It's in his name that we pray, amen.